Sound Vendors, the Sound Designers Podcast. Let's do this. Hello and welcome to Tone Menders, where we talk with the sonic artists behind our favorite films, games, and series. My name is Tim Muirhead and I will be your host today. And joining me is Renee Coronado. It's great to talk to you today, Renee. Hey, Tim. Long time. <laughs> yeah, it has been a little while. It's great to have you back. Right. <laughs> today we're going to be talking about a pretty amazing new sound effects library that has just come out called Cataclysm. We have three of the people behind this project here to talk with us. First up, we have Mattia Chilato whom listeners might recall from our roundtable episode about recording animals from not too long ago. I think this library is mostly the brainchild of Mattia. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Good to be back. Awesome. Also joining us are Kyle Fraser and Robbie Elias, who are both field recordists for this collection. Kyle, it's great to meet you and have you on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Awesome. Robbie is someone that I've been aware of for many years and interacted with a bunch online. I think, Renee, that's the same for you. But this is my first time actually speaking with him. So it's a great pleasure to finally have you on Tonebenders, Robbie. Welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm a big fan. I've been listening for many years, and, you know, it's exciting to be here. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. Mattia, do you want to give us a quick overview of what Cataclysm is and how you found your way to collaborating with Kyle and Robbie? Yeah, definitely. So the library started as a collection of a series of recording sessions of loud sounds that happened to be in environments that sounded pretty interesting. From there, I took a break from recording and I started working with synthesized sounds to see if I could recreate reflections that felt as natural as possible. And most times I failed, but I created things that maybe were a little bit more hyper-realistic or surreal in a way. And from there, I got back to old passions such as other recordists' libraries like Frank Bree's Gun Tales. In that library, there's a lot of content that sounds super interesting in the later part of the sounds. I wanted to create something like that. I wasn't really sure how I could do it. I was pretty sure that even if I tried, I would end up with something else because of the environments that I would be finding myself in. So I got back to recording, trying to find places that were unique. And luckily, being from Italy, I found a lot of places in the mountains where I thought I could get great signal to noise ratio and ideally just incredible late reflections for mountain ranges slapping back the, the original signal. So from there, I tried to do a research and I found a number of places that I could access in Italy. But halfway through that research, I thought that I would still be limited to an extent and a thought came to mind about what sort of triggered part of the experiments, which was seeing a propane cannon recording video from 343 for Halo. So I got in touch with Robbie and we talked about locations. We talked about some of the areas that I had in my head as the perfect location uh, with regards to what something could look like and ideally you'd associate a sound to. Uh, so Robbie had uh, an easier access to these locations than myself and he introduced me uh, to, to Kyle and together we found uh, a few more locations to, to record in the US. I limited my recording sessions to Italy, Sweden and Denmark for, for my part. And so, yeah, from there on, uh, there was also a collaboration with uh, um, Joe Ford for the synthesized section, some contributions for the design sections, and it all sort of came together. And I had a couple of uh, descriptors in terms of inspirations for the library. There's things like uh, God of War, Dune, Arrival, Returnal, a bit of Star Wars in there. There's just a lot of things that have inspired me in long to short run in terms of recent years. Yeah, it sort of collided with this collection because I wanted to try and capture as much as possible in 
in ways that felt, I say, consequential in the sense that I wanted to make even small sounds feel like they could destroy a planet, if that makes sense. So they're the idea for Cataclysm ultimately being wrapped together in this kind of uh, collection, yeah. So as you were, I guess, planning out locations, can you talk a little bit about what the process was to get access to these uh, these locations that are going to give you these big, giant reverb tails? Yes, yes. I can talk about the failure, and I can talk about the few successes yes. that allowed me to go to the, the places that I went to. Uh, the, the failures were just in the first emails, uh, not being used to having to deal with the location managers and being very optimistic about what I thought could be done. I had uh, access to a website that, at least in Italy, provided information about a location and whether it could be used for shooting movies or you know linear media of any kind. And uh, from there, I thought, okay, if these locations are already set up for the job, then it should be very easy for me to go with, a, I guess, perhaps a smaller budget, but also smaller demands, and ideally make something happen. And at the time I thought, well, that could happen with explosives or it could happen with a propane cannon. And originally I didn't even consider the propane cannon as the main option. So I would really try and push for explosions via emails by saying, hello, I'm Italian, but I'm not in Italy right now. Blah, 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 explosions, blah, 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 blah. Uh, <laughs> risk assessment, blah, 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 insurance, blah, 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 blah. I have money though. <laughs> and that really didn't work at all. So the second kind of batch of emails went out as something along the lines of all in all, it's about 30 seconds of noise. It's uh, an environmental response recording to try and capture the sonic beauty of Italy <laughs> and so on and so forth. A little bit more of a massage, the, uh, you know, message, if you will. And that helped uh, quite a lot. But still, I had to send out about 100 emails to places that I thought would be suitable or location managers that were connected to places that I thought would be suitable. And uh, ultimately I got three or four locations that way. And then luckily I had a couple of connections in uh, some areas where I normally go to. The main ones that I'm really happy that I was able to access were the Carrara white marble caves, just because they are so iconic looking and luckily turned out to be also quite iconic sounding because they, they have these insanely dense early reflections and the late reflections are not as pingy as you would expect in a mountain range because of the, the lucidity that comes with, with marble and how, you know, it's such a reflective material. So yeah, it was email exchanges for most of the time. And whenever we managed to make this work in conjunction with explosives rather than uh, propane cannons, it was a bit of a pain because uh, then all of a sudden a pyrotechnics company needed to cover the insurance side of things as well as bringing, you know, flash powder to the session and in conjunction with that of course the location manager needed to green light every single part of, a, of that setup so that turned out to be very complicated it took about three months to organize a session that ultimately was seven hours long or something like that and for each one of these sessions i also wanted a plan b in terms of you know in case of bad weather etc so that added the, the level of complication i ended up using every single plan b date wow that I had for this uh, for this collection. So I'm happy that I did it, but it did add that kind of headroom of complication. So we've mentioned a phrase a few times now, propane cannon. For those who don't know what that is, which until this came along was me, Robbie, maybe do you want to explain what a propane cannon is? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, a propane cannon is something that Kyle and myself found on the internet one day. It was uh, used by airports a lot to scare off birds. 
uh, also known as a bird cannon, but it doesn't fire birds of any kind or anything. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, it can fire on intervals, so it can fire every 30 seconds, or you can have it just do a one-off shot, and it fills up with propane, and then it ignites it, and it creates a loud bang. And it's just a little bit easier to work with than working with explosions. Like it was described, when you want to do an explosion session, you got to get permissions, you got to do a bunch of stuff. If you're using propane cannon, you kind of just show up to a location, you fire it off a couple times, and you take off. You know, So it's a lot easier to set up. It's a lot easier to get out there and get a good recording. And then, you know, the setup takes about like a minute or two minutes kind of thing. So after hearing all that talk about locations, Kyle and I, we live in Washington, so everybody likes guns here and you know blowing stuff up so it's a lot easier to just show up in a nice spot capture the rapport of the location and then take off um, it's just something that when we were working on halo we started using and we've just never stopped using it it's a little bit easier than firing guns with blanks or doing explosion session does it push like a just a compression wave of air out of the front of the cannon or like how does it work Kyle, I'll let you take uh, the logistics of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's essentially it. It basically just ignites the the propane that's inside it, and then it sends out just like a burst of air, essentially, that excites the environment. So like from a safety perspective, you still have to kind of stay away from the front of it? If you were in front of it as it went off, you would be fine. I mean, it's probably smart to be behind it, but... It's a fairly safe mechanism for, you know, capturing those types of sounds. And how big is it? Probably about two, three feet long, that's it. And the barrel can extend too. It actually changes the sound base. So if you extend the barrel all the way out, it's a little bit sharper sounding. And if you bring it in, it's a little bit boomier sounding. Yeah, we've also experienced in the past taking different types of like PVC piping and attaching it to the barrel. You can make it even longer, <laughs> yeah. or kind of have it expand out. And so it has kind of a wider bore and it completely changes the overall sonic character of it. Yeah, there was a session we did in L.A. once where we stuck it in a storm drain and it made the <laughs> biggest boom. Kind of like a space cannon is what it sounded like. I've always tried to recreate that after that day, but it was probably the best recording I got from it. I like how you mentioned that as portable, which is fair enough. But having seen the footage of you two going around with a car, in my case, I would hike with this up a mountain <laughs> for my recording sessions. And the cannon is not even the worst part. It's the actual propane tank that goes with it which I think the lightest you can get is about seven kilos and the propane cannon that I had was probably another seven or something like that not easily fittable in a backpack I'd say so it just kind of ended up being a little bit messier for me so you're hiking up a mountain with the propane tank a cannon and all of the recording gear that limits what you can bring I would think let's start with you Matea what were you using to record yeah, that's a great question. For some sessions, I had the chance to bring so much more than I needed. And for sessions like those where I had to hike for about two hours, I just had to use a lot of small portable recorders handheld. I've indulged myself to, to get to Sony D100s for this library. So now I have two of those, a Roland RO5, if I remember correctly, and a couple of other recorders that I would place strategically to get as many perspectives as possible, even with limited amount of inputs. I would always try to bring either the F3 or a MixPre 10T. The MixPre was pretty much always present, but at that point I would connect it to a micro Uzi, which shows whatever is smallest. MKH 8040s would always be in the setup as well. 
I think the Sennheiser mics are pretty much a constant throughout the library, even when we were talking with Robbie and Kyle at the beginning, there were a couple of mics and recorders that I thought would be great to have on both ends so that we would have some form of consistency. The D100 and the AT40 were the ones that I pushed for. Maybe one thing that is sort of fun to mention is at some point in early phase of the production of the library, we were talking with Robbie about the AT70. That mic doesn't get a whole lot of usage in sound effect recording because it's a low bar cardioid kind of mic. I think you use it for recording soccer player hitting a football in a stadium. It has really mega reach, but at the same time, generally you don't need something like that. But Robbie mentioned that placing it more than 100 meters away from the source of the sound and pointing towards the reflection point. So, you know, imagine yourself at the center of a mountain range, take 100 meters worth of steps and then place the mic looking away from the source into a mountain range. So when we started talking about that, I thought, oh, it'd be cool to try with a stereo setup. So I also brought these two super long mics as a main setup as well. And that really allowed for a super wide stereo image. So that was also fun to bring around. Well, it wasn't fun to bring around. It was, it was nice to listen back to, yeah. Yeah, that, that actually has a huge effect. I've done that for a long time also, kind of breaking down explosions into the parts, which is your kind of concussive impact at the high, the mids and the lows, and then also just the reflections and like dedicating microphones and channels to just the reflections like can yield really great benefits sometimes. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the 8070. I've had it for many years, and I basically bought it just for that. It's just to take to gun sessions or explosion sessions and point it away from the source, usually around trees, because you tend to hear the sound come back through the trees, and that's how you get some nice tail sounds, and you can get tails while getting the direct sound with other mics and stuff like that. So it's a fun mic, but it's also like super long and a real big pain to travel with. <laughs> it also has a really good signal-to-noise ratio, which makes it a really strong contender for a tail mic, because then you get more of the sound before the noise comes in, so you have less noise reduction to do when you're trying to pull that tail out. Mateo, you had two of them? You were setting them up in, what, X, Y, A, B? Uh, Y to RTF. So, yeah, they would be even sometimes four or five meters apart. And I don't think I would even call it ORTF, really. It was more of, I'll just point one of them at the closest mountain that will reflect back the first sort of late reflections set. And the other one will be pointed at a different mountain that ideally will have different timing. So that's kind of how it tends to work. And it worked pretty well. I would just sort of base it on uh, what I was hearing on the spot. If I could hear the reflections move in the range from right to left, I would just try and pick the spot where I heard the beginning and the spot where I heard the end. By the way, when we're talking about size and uh, them being cumbersome, that's without the blimps because then, you know, open mountain, of course, you want that protection as well. So, yeah, <laughs> very, very cumbersome. But I think definitely worth it for that kind of thing, especially like Robbie said, the signal to noise is pretty good in the mic itself. So you just need to find a location that respects that or that makes that shine. Right. I remember coming back from one recording session, listening back and being able to crank so much of that mic in post thinking, I don't even think that it was that good in real life, which is something that I rarely say, because generally the impression you get in real life is deeply more personal. <laughs> Hey everyone, I'm going to interrupt this talk real quick to let you know about the sound design meetups coming up in Toronto and New York City. They're going to be really fun evenings for the sound community in both cities to hang out, tell stories, connect with old friends, and meet some new people. 
7 p.m. on September 26th in Toronto at the Pilot near Bay and Bloor. And New York listeners, get ready on 7 p.m. on October 26th at the Crompton Ale House in Chelsea. Full details available at tonebenderspodcast.com. Okay, back to recording explosions. Did you guys bring any, like, stunt mics or mics that you kind of intended to run into distortion and just falling back on themselves? Yeah, we'd kind of go bigger than probably we needed to because we'd want to try to get as much coverage as possible. And so we'd usually kind of have, like, two setups close to the actual cannon so we could kind of get that close perspective, get the very deep cuss of layer from it. And usually one of the arrays in there, we would kind of let it clip a bit harder, which is nice to have because we record at 32-bit. And so we'd usually always just normalize it down when we send it over to Mattia. Then we'd always have quite a few different far arrays that we'd have running the same things like the 8020s, 8040s, micro Uzis, Uzi Pros, 8070s, then the Sankin CL100Ks. Yeah, I think I ran stereo Sankin C100Ks and then two stereo Uzi Pro rigs, micro Uzis and the 8070, which is kind of a light rig actually for me and Cal, because usually <laughs> we'll have about 10 to 12 mics each on a large gun session, but we had to be more portable and that was our version of portable. Interesting you mentioned the fullback thing, because actually the best recording I ever got with my 8070, I was using an outboard pre, just one of those old sound devices ones and I somehow compressed the signal I don't know what I did and I managed to get one of the most beautiful <laughs> like just rolling tail sounds from that yeah I've always tried to recreate it I never have but because it was 8070 because the signal to noise was so quiet it really salvaged the recording and it just came something special so like sometimes you get happy accidents yeah, like a lot of times you'll just be using your phone or whatever shooting video and just that mic and those cheap electronics and that level of compression will do like a very aggressive, interesting thing sometimes yeah. that is cool to add to the pristine stuff. Yeah, and because they're off axis too, you get less of that sharp initial transient and you get more of a rounder sound, I guess. So you get a nice roll and tail from it. I used to record with Brian Watkins a lot with Kyle, and he would use some stuff too that was similar to that to get some nice compression in the field. And something I haven't used enough of, but I'd like to explore more in the future kind of thing. Yeah, I was going to say those old sound devices, those 442s and stuff like that, they have the built-in transformers in it. And so when you <laughs> hit them hard, you know, they really saturate pleasantly. And it's also worth mentioning, too, with 32-bit, one of the other reasons besides just avoiding the clip with it is you have more flexibility when noise reducing, too. So when you're working in that higher dynamic range, you can definitely reduce more of the noise without artifacting your signal too much, which is really nice about that. And talking about this really makes me think about all of the processing that happened after not having that kind of compression and natural, let's say, smoothening of the sound into a more mid-focused range meant that in post everything felt quite bright. And I'm thinking back to instead of the explosions, the tree cutting sessions, we're having the 8050s and 8040 pointing straight at the cracking point of the tree made for such disappointment coming back home and realizing that my phone sounded a lot fuller. <laughs> the recording of the phone sounded a lot fuller than what I got out of the super kind of crisp mics, which sort of made sense. And so then you start, uh, you know, using transient designers, EQs or dynamic EQs and all sorts of things to try and bring it back down to something that has that high frequency detail briefly in the transients, but also that ultimately feels as big as you thought it should be. Uh. 
that's one of the things that I think is interesting to think about because you sort of get it not exactly for free when you work with a high compression or limiters or things like those. Uh, but then you have less flexibility and I tend to be obsessed about wanting to make the choice in post and only wanting to worry about the recording when recording and getting something that is flexible later on. <laughs> so yeah, the time that didn't go into finding the best compression limiting solution for recording definitely went into the post-processing part. Can you talk about how long you stayed in 32-bit and at what point you brought it down for the purposes of post and kind of what your post process was? I think I stayed in 32 throughout processing, so until the very end in Reaper, all of the files would be 32-bit, and then only in the final bounds, I would just export it to 24, just for the sake of, of course, having it as a commercial library without needing people to make any adjustments of any kind, if that makes sense. That's pretty much true for every single thing that I've recorded on the library. It does, of course, take longer to do any processing, especially like destructive processing in Rx. But at the same time, again, that flexibility, I'm never really sure how much I'm going to push a tail. Sometimes I will bake some gain, but it might not be enough. So I find myself gluing the file over and over, still in 32-bit, but trying to find the way that it will sort of feel as big as possible without doing any of the you know actual processing. Do you want to talk about how you picked the locations? Kyle, had you been to where you recorded before and can you describe them a little bit? So when we first kind of started on this, Matias brought a lot of good reference material for us to kind of start off with. And so when we listened to that, kind of had a location in my mind of like, okay, this is where I know where we need to go. We recorded there like five, six years ago, this perfect rocky terrain to give perfect reflections, which we're trying to achieve. When we go out there, it was like about a four hour drive. I think we went out there the night before. And so we could get up at like 5 a.m. and start recording. When we drove out there, the landscape just completely changed. There was like tons of RVs and trains trailers and horses running around. And so we're like, oh damn, we can't record here. And so we ended up driving around for probably like six hours, just trying to find a good location of recording. And we finally found an open woodland type environment, which wasn't at all ideal of what Mattia was looking for, but you know, we had to record something. And so we did a huge session there and we sent that to him and it wasn't horrible material, but definitely wasn't what we were striving out for. And so we went back to the drawing board and what we did was kind of digged into Google Earth, this app called Free Roam, which I could then be able to survey all the geography and be able to see, okay, is this public land? Is this the Bureau of Land Management? Do they own this? We kept running into issues where we'd be stumbling onto someone's property. <laughs> if you're setting off loud bangs, you don't want someone being like, oh, come out with their shotgun or something like that. And so, you know, we're trying to be on the side of caution quite a bit. And so we ended up finding out in the George area, kind of northeastern Washington. It's like a very popular rock climbing area. And so we went out there one morning in the winter. It was about 20 degrees Fahrenheit. We're thinking, okay, this is going to be a perfect location to record and should be pretty quiet. I can't imagine there being that many people. It's so cold. Who's going to want to rock climb? There were dozens and dozens of people there camping and rock climbing and we're like, oh shit. So we ended up just going and just start recording and we would just go and try to get off as many rounds as we could and try not to scare the people climbing. <laughs> just that whole area was kind of a gold mine because there was all these different cannons and there's like a huge river that kind of runs through and so you just have these really nice lush valleys that we could just kind of set up and record. We usually set up real quick, set off like 10 rounds, then just jump to another place. We probably did like six locations that one day.
Then we would also just try to do some crowdsourcing from people that we know of like, hey, you know of any good locations? I have any private property. One of our colleagues, their parents had just kind of a nice residential property that was on a private lake. And that was probably my favorite recording that we did. When you set off around on that, you could just hear the reflections just travel all throughout the lake and come back. And it was just absolutely massive. Yeah. And so we did that and then we're like, oh, let's do something like this again. And so we found another lake a few miles from there, did another recording there. And yeah, that gave us a good portion of, you know, the content that we were able to deliver to Mattia. Yeah, I feel like I'm listening to Santa describing how my gifts were packed because <laughs> when you came back from that <laughs> recording session in Quincy, I remember taking a listen to the first assets and being like, all right, yes, yes. And then going deeper and deeper in the session going, Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> continuing, continuing. And then I asked uh, Robbie and Kyle to shoot some videos as well for the session so that uh, I could then use them for putting together the trailer for the library. And I think the, the most stunning shots came out of that session. There are so many, one in particular with a sunset and the propane cannon in view. It was incredible. It's so nice when you're not going out yourself, but you're provided with so much material that inspires you that you are as motivated as if you actually were there recording the material yourself in the sense that sometimes, you know, it becomes a desk job when uh, it's in the post side of things. But uh, for these recordings, really, it's been amazing. And yeah, Lake Joy was also great. I had those dense tales translating into the distant trees and then coming back. It was a super articulated kind of tale that I don't think I've ever heard before. So, so many unique tales for anyone that will ultimately make use of the library. Most of what we talked about for the Quincy session will be named Canyon or will have the word Canyon. Lake Joy, I think, will simply be called like Forest Lake, I believe. But yeah, a lot of amazing content there that was super flexible, yeah. And a lot of great perspectives too. I think for most of the Quincy recordings, I could just mute half of the mics and have an export that I would call, for example, you know, the top of the canyon and then unmute the other. So pretty much do an upside down kind of thing for the takes and create something completely different because there were so many perspectives. And again, the signal to noise was uh, really good. I think it's just uh, some crows here and there or whatever. Like I mentioned, it was a little bit tricky to find the perfect noise floor for that area maybe, but like, I think it was still great. After just fixing a couple of things, everything sounded so nice almost right away. I had to do so little on those. <laughs> really good. Yeah, the Quincy one was really funny, actually, because we showed up at this majestic place with these tall stone pillars, and it formed kind of like a horseshoe, which you kind of want sometimes because it reflects the sound and sends it out. And we were setting up, and I was like, Kyle, I'm going to go hike up a little bit and see what's on the other side of these rock pillars real quick before we get started. And I hiked up, and I went around, and there was just like 30 RVs on the other side of it. And I was like, <laughs> oh, okay, uh, Kyle, we can't record here. Right <laughs> And of course, Kyle doesn't like to quit on a location, so he's like, well, let's just do it real quick and then we'll go. And there were some climbers actually starting to climb, so I warned them. I was like, this is what we're going to do. Don't be scared. Just let me know when it's safe to do it because we didn't want to distract them and have them fall or anything like that. And I remember after the first couple shots, somebody just yelled out, that sounds really dope. And it was one of the climbers. <laughs> the place was really nice because you could drive anywhere. Like you could go off road and you can actually drive.
drive into the canyon if you wanted to. It just depended on how much you wanted to risk your vehicle, which was really nice about it. We actually drove around that place and captured like seven different spots. I think that speaks a lot to the attitude of like never settling and making sure that when you're out there, you're going to go get something that you're proud of, even when you run into obstacles. That's an important thing for people to have in their heads as they go out field recording, especially, you know, complex things. Totally. Because, yeah, it never goes as planned. You're always just kind of trying to compromise as best you can and, you know, make sure you're leaving with something that you can work with. Yeah, speaking of not going as planned, for one of the sessions, I was going to what is a ski resort of sorts at the top of a mountain. And after, again, three months of organizing, getting there with a pyrotechnician, there are snow cannons <laughs> going right away in the morning, which are super loud and completely defeat the purpose of trying to find a place in the middle of nowhere in the top of a mountain <laughs> for the most silent silence. Luckily, somehow they broke or the water supply for them broke that morning. And so I ended up being able to record throughout the day. The second that I closed the suitcase at the end of the day with all the mics inside and I was done, they resumed firing snow. So again, <laughs> things can go really wrong or somehow you can get really lucky. I'm not really sure if I got lucky or if someone just kind of helped me or took mercy on me when they saw me arrive with all these microphones. But yeah, that was one of those things that could have been bad. <laughs> A snow cannon is something that makes fake snow on the mountain, right? We're talking about cannons that make noise. So that's probably just like a white noise generator type sound. Yeah, this is not one of the good cannons we're talking about today. This is a <laughs> cannon you should identify as the enemy. It's broadband noise. It's just, you know, it sprinkles man-made snow on the hillside. Yeah, that'd be a nightmare to show up and just hear all that rumbling away. Oh, I was told that it would resume pretty much imminently and that I would not have time to record anything, but ultimately I was able to. So yeah, so many things that could have gone wrong with these recording sessions. One of them was also hiking with my girlfriend and our newborn baby on a trail that had a lot of blood along the way. This was like about two kilometers of just hiking on snow, the purest, whitest snow with just the freshest, reddest blood. <laughs> and I think, again, Chloe, uh, sorry, my, my daughter, if you're listening to this in a few years, <laughs> it was most certainly animal blood. It was probably like a hunter or something. But, you know, it was one of those things like throughout. We were like, eh, will it be good? It was okay. <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, small places in Italy, nothing that you create a Netflix series about. So, <laughs> yeah, that would be alarming. So we've talked about all of the actual acoustic recordings, but this library also includes a bunch of design sounds. Do you want to talk about how those came to be? Yeah, sure. So when I made uh, my previous sound design library, meaning not animal-based uh, metamorphosis, I had the chance to scratch the surface with regards to textures that I thought were pleasing to me with a lot of what I would call micro dynamics, like small transients that would make the sound feel quite crisp, taking advantage of cranking a synthesized sound where the signal to noise ratio will never be a problem. So thinking back to, again, some references that I mentioned, like Returnal, for example, or The Northman, there's so many textures that are super gritty that I think are almost unachievable in limiting yourself to use only recordings. So I try to get back to that and dig deeper into this idea of creating hyper-realistic textures in the context of a library that would feature explosions as well as trees cracking. So things that are sort of organic, but not that much. 
for this part of the library, I did some of the work myself and I used a number of synths, uh, pigments, serum for the past one, vital, and I got familiar with some of them because I never used them before. And then for another part of the synthesizer section, I was able to get in touch with Joe Ford, who helped a lot in um, creating the soundscape for that section. And he works quite differently from me. I wish that he was here to try and explain a little bit of, you know, the, the nitty gritty of his process, but it was completely different from mine. I think he works a lot more destructively from what I can tell. And he's really good at creating these textures that feel super full, rich, but also ambiguous. I would say very, very versatile, if that makes sense. So we worked together, although I started that work and then I let pretty much Joe finish that section. I got half of the way and he did the rest. And so I went back to listen to my early designs and I think I scrapped about 30% of what I made because he raised the bar so much that some of the things that I originally made did not really fit anymore. They didn't have enough of the density or maybe they just felt kind of like very quiet sounds cranked up, which ultimately would still get lost if you layered them with literally anything. <laughs> so yeah, that part of the library came together in a very different way, but it was an awesome collaboration. Well, the library sounds huge. So congratulations to everybody. Thanks for talking to us about it today. If listeners want to stay tuned after we wrap up, we'll play some sounds from the library from the demo, if that's okay with you, Mattia. Of course. Awesome. Thanks a lot, everybody. It was great talking to you. It's great to meet you all. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. Wow. Listening to them makes me want to get a propane cannon for myself. I wonder if you can rent one anywhere. If you are in New York City or Toronto, make sure to come out to our upcoming sound design meetups, September 26th in Toronto and October 26th in New York. Go to ToneBendersPodcast.com for all the details. This episode was volunteer edited and mixed by listener Jacob Wolf. Jacob is a sound designer based in Detroit, Michigan, working in commercials, theme parks, and interactive media. You can find him on LinkedIn for more info. Thanks a lot, Jacob. Stay tuned to hear more sounds from the Cataclysm Library in just a few seconds. My name is Tim Muirhead, and on behalf of Matea, Kyle, and Robbie, thanks for listening to Tonebenders. Tonebenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio related podcasts to listen to? ToneBenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.